You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, church. Wonderful to see you. If you have your Bible, open it up to Genesis chapter 6. We're continuing our series this morning in the book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at Genesis 6, 1 through 8, which if you are wondering is the passage about the Nephilim. So all of your questions are about to be answered about who the Nephilim are. Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8. Let's read this text. We'll pray, and we will jump in. Genesis 6, verse 1, God's Word says this, "'When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God,' saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you and hear your words this morning, we ask that you would instruct us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would be able to see what you intend for us to see this morning and that we would have um, the refreshing reminder of the power of your grace the danger and impact of sin, but of the redemption that is found in Christ. And that those things would propel us to draw near to you as we hear from you and as we consider your words and their meaning for our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So Jerry Bridges, in his book, Respectable Sins, he describes the effect of sin in this way. He says, sin is a spiritual and moral malignancy. Left unchecked, it can spread throughout our entire inner being and contaminate every area of our lives. Even worse, it often will metastasize from us into the lives of other believers around us. So this passage that we just read from Genesis 6 illustrates this truth all too well. In it, as well as the chapters that precede it, what we see are people going from bad to worse. Generations pass, wickedness increases, but the absence of repentance remains. And just like the news of physical cancer and its impact on our own hearts, God's response to this spiritual cancer is one of great sorrow and grief, but also of resolve. As we consider Genesis 6, 1 through 8 today, the main idea that I want to present to you and that we will seek to defend 
uh, is this, that God's response to the malignancy of human sin is divine grief in view of his love. It's divine wrath in view of his holiness and divine grace in view of his mercy. And this main idea is gonna give us our four points of emphasis that first we have to understand the depths of human sin that is depicted in this text, how sin is a malignant cancer. Second, we're going to explore how God's grief over human sin is displayed in this text and how it communicates the depths of his love for us. Third, we will see how God's wrath against sin represents his commitment to eradicate its impact. And fourth, we will learn how the divine grace that's received by Noah highlights the true power of God's mercy and how all of these characteristics come together and look forward to that ultimate work of redemption through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we're gonna look at the malignancy of sin, God's grief over it, his wrath against it, but his mercy and grace for sinners. Okay, so first, how is sin like a malignant cancer? This text begins as a conclusion to the genealogy that we learned about in chapter five last week and the book of the generations of Adam. It's got that same, uh, it's the end of the previous Toledot section. If you've heard us talk about this in our series, it is this structure that highlights the main narrative divisions in the book of Genesis. This section that goes all the way to the end of our passage is the end of one section before a new Toledot section begins in verse nine that Shay will talk about next week. And it connects to the preceding genealogy as a way of helping us see the state of humanity throughout the nearly 2,200 years that span from Adam to the birth of Noah's children. But what this text shows us is not pretty. We read first in verse one that as humanity is expanding across the land, there is this particular emphasis given to the daughters that are born to them. And in chapter five, we read about these different named ancestors and how they had many sons and daughters, but this is the first time that the focus of the narrative now turns to these daughters as an active participant in the story. And so astute hearers of this account in the nation of Israel, as this book was received, would have understood that this emphasis means something significant. But in verse two, we are again surprised to read about another group that is identified only as the sons of God. And if the original audience in the book of Genesis knew who these folks were, um, they have not left many clues for us today. This is one of those areas in, in interpretive history where there is no strong consensus among scholars about who the sons of God were. But most, if they have to come to a conclusion, have said that this likely represents spiritual beings like angels or demons, which actually fits the way that the term is used elsewhere in passages like Job chapter 1, verse 6, where we read that the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them regarding the fate of Job. But what I want you to see that is most significant, even beyond the identification of this group of beings, is what happens between the daughters of man and the sons of God. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. The word is actually good. The sons of man saw that the daughters of men were good and they took wives from among them. Now that language might sound familiar to you. And if it does, it's because it is familiar. It follows the same pattern of, a, of the account of Eve's sin in Genesis three, just as she saw 
that the fruit of the tree was good to make one wise, and she took of it and ate, so too do the sons of God take from among the daughters of men in pursuit of their own design. We see the fruit of this union now described in verse four. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days with the assumption being that this represents the children of the daughters of man and the sons of God. Nephilim just means giants, which apparently is what these offspring were. But because the text doesn't elaborate on this, I'm not going to either. Okay, so I don't want to hear any questions about Andre the Giant, about Hagrid, about Boban Marjanovic, anything like that. But what happens is that in response to this unholy and illicit union, we see the Lord pronounce his initial judgment. Humankind would be limited in their span of life to 120 years. Some have wondered why, why does God judge humanity for what appears primarily to be the sins of the sons of God, these angelic beings? But the text nowhere says that these unions were anything but consensual. In fact, in these days, there is no way that such a marriage, such an unorthodox pairing would have occurred without the explicit endorsement of the father of the bride and of her family. So the rationale behind this judgment is that things have progressed to such a point that people were so wicked, the sons of God, so eager to step outside of their creative functions as spirit beings, that these marriages were promoted that represent an even greater violation of God's design than something like the polygamy of Lamech in chapter four. That this is true helps us then to understand the diagnosis that God gives regarding the condition of man in verse five. Look at verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice the progression. In Genesis three, Adam and Eve rebel. In Genesis four, Cain murders Abel and Lamech brags of his misdeeds. But by the the, the, the time of Genesis 6, sin has spread so extensively that its presence through the wickedness of man was great in the earth. It was everywhere that you looked. But it was also intensively and pervasively present in each human heart. This heart, what the Bible describes as the center of who we are, the place from which all of our actions and thoughts and desires originate that shapes and informs our life the way that a potter would form clay, which is what the word intention means here. It's highlighting the purposeful creation of something bent on satisfying the depraved desires of one's heart, but which always leads to devastation and ruin. This is the malignancy of sin. It invades every part of our hearts. And just like the description that we read earlier from Jerry Bridges, the spiritual cancer of sin spills over into the lives of others. Some are swayed by its influence and others damaged by its effects, but we are all impacted. So as we think about what is being said here, we have to take a step back and understand a couple of things. First, this original audience of Genesis, the post-Exodus nation of Israel, they're preparing to enter into a land where the illicit unions that are described in verses one and two would not only have been tolerated, but they would have been celebrated as forming the part of the foundation of their own creation myths. 
And so the inclusion of a similar kind of story here is meant not only to highlight the truth behind satanic activity like this, but also to help Israel stand in stark contrast in their distinction and what they were called to represent as they prepared to enter the land of Canaan. The commentator Gordon Winham describes this contrast that was to exist in Hebrew thinking compared to other nations when he says that because in the earthly realm, the creature's categories must not be transgressed, how much worse was this breach of the boundary between earthly and heavenly realms? The Hebrews preparing to enter the land of Canaan needed to understand that unlike the false gods whose stories were intertwined with sexual misdealings with human creatures, the true God stands apart as holy. He has created people with a specific design and purpose, and he rightly stands in judgment towards those who flaunt his rule. If they would not have a firm grasp then of the threat that existed, they too would find themselves one day parroting the same idolatries of the nations they were about to enter. But the second thing for us to note is that Genesis does not limit the potential for human sinfulness solely to one group of people, which could have tempted Israel who first received this narrative, or perhaps we who read it today as believers, to view ourselves as somehow immune from the risk or the threat. No, what is happening is that the diagnosis is far reaching and it implicates everyone, all people, apart from the grace of God, are at risk of the all-consuming cancer of sinful intent and action. Do you see the parallels that exist for us as we think about a passage like this in our current cultural context? We live in a society that has devoted an entire month to the celebration of false identities and sexual idolatry. But because of the threat of cultural disapproval, Christians are constantly barraged with the command to assimilate into the paganism of our day, all under the threat of dismissal from any place of respect or influence. We are plagued by murderous violence that reflects the designs of a person's heart. But in our culture, we have found ourselves doing everything we can to depersonalize motivation into some kind of abstraction as a vague notion of evil, rather than confronting the true reasons people purpose in their hearts to harm others. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But we in the church are just as liable to fall prey to sin's pervasive influence and not just regarding overt expressions of sexuality or violence, but extending also to our presumption, to our anger, our malice, or simply our rebellious efforts to live a self-made, fully autonomous life apart from God. We are not immune. We are not safe from the malignancy of sin but how God responds to such expressions of sin brings us to our second point, that he responds to human sin with divine grief. Look at verse six. Verse six shows us the response that God makes when surveying the extensive and intensive impact of human sinfulness. It says this, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Two very important things for us to notice here. First is that this statement 
It was meant to highlight a contrast to Genesis 5, 28 and 29, when Noah's father, Lamech, says that Noah would bring relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. The word relief, work, and toil share the same Hebrew root as the verb regret, made, and grieved. The impact is to show us that where Lamech believed that Noah's coming would bring about rest and healing, that the reverse was actually true. Human sin would only have a further damaging impact on life in God's world, such that it is expressed by God's remorse in a way that directly parallels his perspective regarding human depravity. But second, you're probably noticing some theological difficulty in saying that God has regretted making man on the earth. You might be asking, how can God, who does not change, who never does what he does not intend to do, how could God regret that he created mankind? To construct an answer to this important question, we have to consider both the meaning of the word that is translated here as regret, but also to develop a basic comprehension of a few theological truths about God and his nature. So first, this word regret can be translated as sorrow also, or even repentance. The idea is that of a kind of emotional response that is based upon the recognition of a decision that has had negative impact, and then of a turning way towards something different as a result. I think the ESV translators are actually being kind of courageous here to not shy away from a difficult reading in an attempt to smooth out in such a way to just simply say God was sad about human sin because that doesn't go far enough to depict the kind of relational pain that he is experiencing over sin and his commitment in response to his own glory and holiness. So this connects theologically with two doctrines that are important for us to know. The first is the doctrine of divine immutability. All that means is that It is the doctrine that teaches us about the unchanging character and nature of God. In other words, God is unchanging in his knowledge. He is omniscient. He is unchanging in his power. He is omnipotent. He is unchanging in his wisdom. He is omnisapient. He is completely self-sufficient. He has not, nor does he require anything outside of himself to be fully who he is. He is completely holy, completely glorious, and completely just. These characteristics cannot and do not change about him. Yet, because God is constantly relating to a created world that does change, this divine immutability is expressed through his dealings with his creatures. This is what's known as the doctrine of relational mutability. Think divine immutability, relational mutability. This is the connection between God's unchanging nature and his perfect ethical faithfulness represented in his dealings in the real world. So we see in scripture that God will do one thing in one situation and something different in another, but that it always occurs in accordance with his unchanging character. The theologian Bruce Ware will say it in this way, that God constantly changes in his affairs with his people as he encounters new happenings in response to changing situations. But God's changes always express rather than deny his unchangeable moral nature. This means that what may sometimes look like a change of course in God's actions or his intent 
are actually accurate expressions of the complete perfection in God's character and his nature. So when the text says that God regretted that he had made man, it is a way of expressing both God's divine immutability along with this relational mutability, his unchanging character expressed in the changing circumstances of our world. Because his holiness cannot tolerate the sinfulness of humanity, there must therefore be a response from him that reflects his displeasure of sin's pervasive effect on human life. Without such a response, what can we say about the heart of God towards sin except that he is somehow unmoved by it and its presence in the lives of his image bearers? That cannot be because God's glory and holiness propel him to concern over the presence of sin in the world and of the damage that it produces in people's lives. And so this here is ultimately an expression, not only of his holiness, but also of his great love for his image bearers and over the effects that sin produces in a person's life. So there's no conflict for us to see God express these attributes in relation to the presence of sin in the world. It's very similar to places in scripture where we see God apparently changing his mind and doing something different than what he has said he would do. His character has not changed, but rather his decisions reflect the changing nature of humanity and the unchanging heart of God expressed in real time. His regret then, his sorrow, is the faithful expression of his unchanging character in the face of the devastating cancer of sin in the hearts of men and women. This is further emphasized when we look at the final phrase in verse six, that this regret because of man's sin, it grieved him to his heart. Just like Lazarus or Jesus outside of Lazarus's tomb, God is bitterly grieved. He is indignant with the depths of his pain because of human sin. This too is an expression of his nature. Just like us as image bearers, we talked earlier about the heart that God has given us. God also has a heart that functions in the same areas of cognition, of his perspective on the world, of affection, of his desires and his emotions and of volition, his actions and his commitments. But unlike us, His heart is perfect in its judgments. So this emotional response of grief rightly accords with his regret because it perfectly expresses what should issue forth from the heart in response to sin. Yet it is this grief informed by God's love that also moves him to act, which brings us to our third point. God's wrath against sin represents his commitment to eradicate its impact. So I briefly want to note that just as with the initial pronouncement of judgment that we saw in the first part of this passage, that God's sorrow and grief over the depths of human sinfulness moves him to act. In verse seven, God expresses his intent to blot out the living creatures he has created. This is God's wrath against sin. Sometimes we struggle to see God's wrath as anything except the threat of judgment But this isn't the way this text should be understood. What we are actually seeing is God's commitment to deal with the problem of sin for redemptive purposes. So think back to Genesis 3.15. Just as God has promised in that first gospel that he will stand victorious over sin and he will bring redemption to a world broken by it, so too does this promise remain in view in Genesis 6 verse 7. It is incompatible with God's character for him to ignore the sinfulness of his creatures. If he did, 
he would cease to be God because he would no longer be perfectly holy and perfectly glorious. And a God that is less than holy and less than glorious is what already existed in the time of Genesis in the land of Canaan. And so why would they want anything like that as Israel listened to this message? But Israel was a people of God's own possession and he was their God. And they hear about these events that are leading up to the flood that we'll look at next week and how God has judged sin. And surely one of the takeaways that they would have is the realization that they're on the other side of these events. And that this account actually represents the story of how they not only came to be as a people, but how God has moved in history to bring about redemption. And so yes, if we isolate God's commitment to judge Humanity in verse seven, apart from this larger redemptive history, we actually miss the significance and will focus instead on this judgment rather than considering all that God will do as his story of salvation unfolds in the years to follow. But I want you to notice that his wrath and his commitment to judgment does not fall on all of his creatures. One man will be the recipient of God's grace, which is the focus of our fourth And final point, that God's grace highlights the true power of his mercy. Okay, look at verse eight. Closes out this passage with a short, simple, but stunning statement. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, if you will recall, is the last person who's listed in the genealogy of chapter five. And clearly this narrative is now shifting to chronicle his place in the story of redemption. And yes, while Noah is described in the following verses as a righteous man, blameless in his generation, who walked with God, the very first thing that we see about him, apart from the birth of his sons, is that he found favor with God. He found it. He's not described as having earned it, but rather as receiving it from God. This word favor is closely related and synonymous even with the word grace. Noah found grace with God. And so it's helpful to consider what that means to discover the true impact of this statement. So first, we need to think about what precedes grace. Grace cannot be given to those whom God does not first view with a heart of mercy. God looks upon people with compassion when he sees our need and he is moved in his heart towards us with love. So when God is described in 2 Corinthians 1, for example, as the father of mercies, it is a way of saying that God's eyes towards us are eyes of compassion and of kindness. And this is the way that he viewed Noah. But in addition to mercy, grace also means acceptance. The fact that Noah found favor with God means that he was accepted by God. He was seen and treated differently as a recipient of God's grace. And this means that just as important it is that he was accepted by God, that Noah would also not be subject to the wrath of God that would come to the rest of humanity. He would be spared the judgment of the flood. He would see his life along with the lives of his wife and his sons and his daughters-in-law preserved. He would not receive what he otherwise deserved. And then lastly, at this point in redemptive history, the fact that Noah found grace with God tells us a great deal again about God's commitment to fulfill his promises. Just like Seth, hundreds of years prior, being born after Cain killed Abel, Noah would now be the one through whom God's line continued rather than humanity overcome by the depravity of sin. And what we know is that from Noah's line comes not only the nation of Israel, 
but also our Redeemer and Savior, Jesus. And so to recap what we've said today, this was that main idea I shared with you at the beginning. God's response to the malignancy of human sin is his divine grief in view of his love, his divine wrath in view of his holiness, and his divine grace in view of his mercy. And what I wanna do today is briefly consider what those four elements mean for us in terms of application as we finish up this morning. Okay, so first, regarding the malignancy of sin, we cannot ignore sin's power. Okay, we've said this already, that we have to see sin as the threat that it really is, but it bears repeating. Sin's desire is to destroy us. And if it is given safe quarter, it will take up residence and take over. And the way that I thought about this was sin is the world's worst housemate. And the reason I thought about this, this is, follow me. When I was in college, I was in a band and that band was named Fishboy. And Fishboy, he's a real person. His name is, his name's Eric. We had a song called A Surprise Return. The song was about a Christmas tree that had been put on the curb, but that had come to life and returned to our house and was the world's worst housemate. There was a music video made about this and, and it's, a, it's out there already. I've had someone tell me, we watched the video. In the video, a real Christmas tree was brought back into the house where I lived with Fishboy. And there were, I came home one day. Now, I didn't know this music video shoot was happening. This is what Denton is like, folks. Um, there were pine needles everywhere, everywhere. And my friend was like, I'm gonna clean it up. He didn't. Pine needles everywhere, pine needles everywhere, pine needles everywhere. Okay, sin is way worse than that. <laughs> I hope you make the connection. Sin is the world's worst housemate. It's gonna take up residence. It's gonna take over your life. And so let's evict it. Let's be serious about doing away with it and uprooting it by the power of God's spirit, which means pursuing that lifestyle of confession and of repentance and of faith and reliance on God and his work through Jesus Christ in the gospel. We bears repeating, we must see this threat and respond to it appropriately. Second, let's be careful that we do not unknowingly have a view of God that removes all possibility of his emotions expressed in relationship to our world. Our God is unchanging, but he is not unfeeling. Theologians have wrestled with these two things held in tension and for a long time viewed emotions on par with a kind of weakness. And so they sought to really downplay the presence of emotions in the heart of God because they didn't want to imply any kind of weakness with respect to his character. But that isn't the way that scripture speaks of God and his response to the world. He relates to folks in emotional capacities. We see this in the Old Testament and how God gauges his, engages his people as creator and Lord. We see it in the New Testament through Jesus and how he relates to people as savior and king. God is not unfeeling, he is perfectly feeling, which means that he is angered over injustice. He is grieved by sinfulness. He is compassionate towards the humble and he is gracious towards the broken, which means that if you are in Christ, his affection towards you is love and mercy and, and just complete devotion. That reality is so contrary to the way we often approach God with a mindset first of insufficiency and shame. And that's not what's pictured in the scriptures. 
And third, and by extension, let us never forget then that we have been saved by grace. We received God's favor in Jesus Christ because of nothing that we did. We didn't earn it. We cannot lose it. We can only receive it. Our condition was actually quite the opposite to any kind of, any kind of worth. You and I are no different constitutionally than the people toward whom God's wrath was directed in Genesis 6, 5. We're no different. We are the same people, but God has shown his favor to us that we might be able to live to his glory. One of my favorite ways of capturing this comes from the counselor, Bob Kellerman. He says, it's a horrible thing to sin, but it is a wonderful thing to be forgiven. That is true for us in the gospel. And so let's pray to these ends as we prepare to come to the table. So we remember God's grace, how it has been shown to us through Christ. And we'll come and celebrate communion together as a family. God, we thank you. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word. We thank you for the way in which you show us continually the glory of your own character, of your love for us, of our need in response to our sin, but of of the provision of that need through Christ. We pray that as we come to your table now, that you would be with us to help confirm in our hearts the power of your grace, that we would come to you with our need to confess and to receive as your children. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus. So we want to encourage you to be a part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15, and 4 p.m., and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.